Welcome to the second installment in Baker McKenzie's Asia-Pacific Risk and Crisis Management podcast series, Managing Business Compliance Issues in the New Normal. In this series of podcasts, we'll be exploring the challenges and risks encountered by businesses amidst the constantly changing legal and regulatory landscape. Our Baker McKenzie team of speakers will share their insights around the various legal and compliance issues, which will be illustrated via a factual scenario. My name is Georgie Farrant, a partner in Baker McKenzie, and I'm based in Sydney. I'm joined today by my fellow partner, Simon Hui, who's based in Shanghai. Simon and I have worked together on several fraud-related cases over the years, and we've learned from that that there are often key differences between jurisdictions in relation to the options available for companies facing crisis situations, and the importance of understanding the legal and commercial options in all relevant jurisdictions. Hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast, you also listened to the first one in the series. So I will not repeat all of the facts from the hypothetical scenario, but the key points are that as a result of a fraudulent email and people within the company acting on that email, including someone who's working remotely, a $5 million payment that was due to go to a supplier has instead been sent to the fraudster's bank account. In the first episode, we considered what initial steps should be taken in relation to the remitting bank and the receiving bank to try and stop the payment. And certainly in my experience, that is absolutely the most urgent step to take. And we have seen scenarios where at least some of the monies have been prevented from moving out of the receiving bank's account because of that prompt action. But if we assume that that first step has not been successful and the money has already been transferred from the receiving bank's account, possibly into account in another foreign jurisdiction, What are the other options for the company? In today's episode, we're going to look at the options of trying to recover the money from the fraudsters and also trying to recover the money through insurance. We'll leave for another episode the option of getting the police or the regulators involved, although Simon will touch on that briefly in relation to China. But obviously, in some cases, you may be pursuing both civil options and assistance from the authorities at the same time. So if we start with the fraudsters, What are your prospects of getting the money back from them? It's really gonna depend on three key elements. First of all, can you work out who the fraudsters are? Secondly, are they still in the jurisdiction or are they in another jurisdiction where you'll be able to bring proceedings against them? And thirdly, can you trace the assets that have been taken or does the fraudster have other assets that you may be able to recover damages from? So the first key issue is, can you work out who the fraudsters are? In Australia, at least, um, and in many other common law jurisdictions, there'll be two things we might be looking into for this aspect. The first could involve getting an IT forensic expert who can determine how, for example, fake emails were sent and any digital identifying information. If, for example, the way in which the fake emails were sent was by having an email name showing as different to the actual email address, then you might have access to a Gmail or a Hotmail address to follow the links. Companies such as Google won't just tell you who owns a Gmail account. You'll need to get court orders to obtain that information. And that's certainly something we've assisted clients with in the past. Secondly, if you know the bank account that the funds have been transferred into, then you may be able to seek court orders to require the bank to tell you the information about the owner of that account. Of course, you may simply find a web of alias names and shell companies to unravel, And in some of our cases, there are many steps to be taken, sometimes in multiple jurisdictions, to find and identify who the funds have been transferred to. 
For example, in one case involving our Hong Kong, London, Australian offices, and a Cayman firm, we had to get orders from courts in both Sydney and Cayman and Hong Kong in order to get to the identity of the fraudster, but we did get there in the end. So Simon, in China, would any of those options be available and anything else you might consider doing? Oh, thank you, Georgie. Um, the situation in China is uh, a bit different. Uh, the Chinese court only has a limited role to play when it comes to finding out the identity of fraudsters. Chinese banks will not disclose in account holder information to external parties unless they receive orders or instructions to do so from Chinese authorities. Since cyber fraud is a criminal offense, under the PRC system, the Chinese police will take the lead in handling the investigation against the fraudsters. That said, we have helped clients commence civil proceedings in China in situations where the recipient of the funds has come forward and claimed that it has legitimate reasons to receive the money. The recipients may produce contractual agreement and shipping documents to support these claims that the funds received are actually payment for goods or services that it has provided to the customers. Under these circumstances, the Chinese police may not be willing to continue its investigation, and the client will have to see civil remedies to recover the money by launching a civil proceeding in the Chinese court. Legal assistance is available to help clients commence civil proceedings before a competent Chinese court. And at the same time, the client is also entitled to apply for an asset preservation order from the court to freeze the recipient's bank account or other assets pending the final resolution of the case. In one of the cases that our firms has handled recently, the client was defrauded by the fraudster and transferred its fund to a bank account in Hong Kong. Further transfers took place before the money finally reached the defendant's bank account in China. The defendant claimed that the funds were repayment for goods that it had sold to an overseas buyer. In this case, it is a large quantity of ceramic sinks for the construction project. The defendants actually produced contractual documents stating the quantity and the size of the goods and the shipping documents indicating the model and size of the container used for shipping the goods. After carefully reviewing the quantity and size of the ceramic sinks and the size of the container, we found it that it is impossible for the alleged quantity of goods to be fitted into the container. We note that the volume of the goods allegedly to have been shipped has greatly exceeded the volume of the container that was supposedly to have been used to transport the goods. The case was eventually settled to our client's satisfaction after this issue was pointed out to the defendant. Now that you have found out who are the fraudsters, you may want to consider what are the legal steps that you can take against the fraudsters to trace and recover the funds. In China, given cyber fraud is criminal in nature, the Chinese police will play a leading role in tracing and freezing assets in a cyber fraud case. Therefore, it is critical for the victims to report the fraud promptly to the Chinese police and provide them with strong supporting evidence to enable the police to take up the case by taking immediate steps to trace and freeze funds. Freezing orders issued by Chinese police do not have extraterritorial effect. In cases where cross-border transfer of funds are involved, the Chinese police may enlist the help of Interpol 
to coordinate efforts with their overseas counterparts to trace and freeze the funds. Georgie, what are the legal options available in Australia that a client can avail themselves to uh, to trace and recover the money from the fraudsters? Yeah, so in Australia, we are much more likely to take civil action rather than to rely on the police. But that, of course, doesn't mean that uh, it shouldn't be reported to the police. Um, but it sounds like the advantage that we have in Australia and um, many other common law countries is that regardless of whether the assets um, are in Australia or overseas, we can look at uh, commencing a civil action to try and maximise recovery of the assets by getting freezing orders. Um, the key purpose of these freezing orders is to make sure that once you've gone through what can often be a long road of proving that the fraudsters should repay the funds, um, is to make sure that those funds are secured so that you ultimately can get them to pay the judgment. Um, now, the circumstances in which it's going to be appropriate and possible to apply for this type of relief will vary between different jurisdictions and different scenarios. But if you're faced with this situation, some of the questions that we would recommend that you ask your lawyers are, what searches can we do to find out where the fraudster has assets and what type of assets they are? Can we get freezing orders in those jurisdictions or for example, is a worldwide freezing order possible? Does the freezing order have to be in the same country where we bring the main proceedings? So, for example, Simon and I worked on a case together where the fraudster was in China and we had to bring proceedings there, um, but we discovered he had significant assets in Australia and we wanted to get those assets frozen before the fraudster knew that we were pursuing him. So we had to get a freezing order in Australia in support of prospective proceedings in China that hadn't even yet been started. Certainly complicated, but uh, possible and successful in the end. Um, some of the other questions that it's important for you to ask your lawyers about and to understand if you are thinking about getting this type of remedy is whether you'll have to give an undertaking as to damages. So in most common law jurisdictions, this is usual. And it means that if you freeze someone's assets and ultimately don't prove your case, you may have to pay the person who you thought was the fraudster damages if they can prove that they've suffered any loss as a result of having their assets frozen. So it's an important consideration before you start these type of proceedings. You'll also want to understand, is my case strong enough to make the costs and risks of obtaining a freezing order worthwhile? You have to remember that getting the freezing order is only one piece of the puzzle and it very much needs to make sense in the bigger picture. As I said, in some situations, a worldwide freezing order might be possible. Um, and it's so important to remember that speed when you're obtaining freezing orders or other remedies such as tracing orders is absolutely key. The longer that the funds are out there, the more likely they are to be mixed with other funds, making them much more difficult to trace and or much more likely to be moved into other jurisdictions and there may be nothing left in the fraudster's name to freeze. Of course, for freezing orders, usually you will have to be successful in the first step of working out who the fraudster is. As mentioned in the last podcast, it is in theory possible to get freezing orders against unnamed persons, but that would still be very rare. So if unfortunately you can't work out who the fraudsters are 
or you can't work out where they are in order to serve them with proceedings, or if you think there's going to be no assets left, um, there is still the possibility that you may have insurance which will come to your aid. The most important point to make here is that you should not wait to see whether you can recover the money from the fraudsters before looking into your insurance situation. It's absolutely vital that insurers are notified immediately because failure to do so may prevent you from claiming or impact on your ability to recover your legal fees. It is of course possible and indeed normal for the two streams to run together. And in some cases, it's possible that the insurers will agree to indemnify the company for its loss and then bring what is called a subrogated claim on behalf of the company to then try and recover the payout, either from the fraudsters or perhaps even from the bank or financial institution who paid out the monies. We hope that's been a helpful insight in relation to some of the options that might be available if you're unfortunate enough to fall victim to one of these fraudsters. And if you remember nothing else from these podcasts, it is the need for speed and to think about all avenues of banks, fraudsters and insurers simultaneously and also regulators. And if you stay tuned for the next episode of our Asia Pacific Risk and Crisis Management podcast series, we will focus on how interactions with regulators and police may be able to assist you if you find yourself in this position. Thank you, Simon, for sharing your insights on these issues. And thank you so much, everyone, for listening.